All right. Welcome back. Uh, I'm afraid I still have to say something. So instead of a discussion, I just continue with my exposition here. Just, just let them to, to put some questions because some uh, attendants have uh, basic questions about expression they couldn't understand. Well, then might as well have the question now because I don't want to yeah, change yeah, subjects. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm asking. Okay. Before you uh, yeah. ask for questions, please. Who has a question? Who, who has a question? Okay. The question is left. <laughs> so, no question. The person who had the question is left or is not here at the moment. All right. All right. Well, I will change the subject slightly because I want to explain the title of the whole course, which is uh, the coordination problem in economics. Um, there are several views of what economics is really about, and one is one view says that economics is really just a theory of choice. Individuals, that's where the word subjective comes in, individuals have to choose, just like the uh, farmer with his six sacks of wheat has to choose what, how he arranges his priorities, etc. And um, based on his judgment, he makes a decision. So there is a theory of choice, theory of decision. But uh, from our point of view, which is, uh, we try to uh, elaborate on Menger's ideas, Economics is not a theory of choice, it's a theory of processes which describe social interaction. Individuals call them economizing individuals, as Karl Menger, the term comes from Karl Menger, economizing individual, is somebody who makes decisions based on uh, facts of availability of goods and resources and uh, uh, trying to find an optimal solution to various problems that way. That's what an economizing individual is. He or she finds herself confronted with a chaotic situation, a conglomeration of disorder. He or she would uh, observe that there is too much of something here, too little of that somewhere else, and then take another good and it's just the other way around. So that's a disorder because there is surplus here and shortage there and vice versa. And 
such an individual might decide to do something about it, something which will ease the situation, which will reduce this degree of uh, disorder. So we are talking about various uh, degrees of coordination, higher degree of coordination meaning less disorder or greater or smaller degree of coordination which is means greater disorder and the name for a person who is doing something about it is entrepreneur French word but the English has adopted that word so we can use it with confidence. The entrepreneur finds this his job to reduce the degree of disorder, to work towards a higher degree of coordination. That's the basic problem of economics, how to do it, how the entrepreneur does it, and uh, what tools he has. So that's pretty well uh, a concise way of describing what economics is about and uh, a very useful way also because it answers most of the questions one can ask about economics. So economics is a study of uh, coordination and this movement from disorder to a higher order of coordination and we just describe it uh, as a process. It's a social process because obviously the entrepreneur is not an isolated person. It's he or she is part of society and in making these decisions and doing this work of coordination, reducing disorder is going to be a process which takes time and even it's not a foregone conclusion that the entrepreneur will succeed. Uh, there are many who fail, and this is quite important because uh, one thing the Marxists uh, forget is that profit in itself is a non-existent idea because you can talk about profit only if you put it and consider it together with uh, loss. Lucky is the entrepreneur who makes a profit, but this does not guarantee that next time around he can make profit again. So he would have to stand on his tiptoes all the time because uh, he may have laurels, but he cannot rest on them. He just 
has to keep on and finding always the next disorder and address it. One other thing about the entrepreneurial activity is that it's all right to solve a problem here because it's like a cobweb. If you solve a problem here, it may, well, create another problem somewhere else. So you reduce disorder, increase coordination at this point at the expense of reducing coordination somewhere else. Even so, it's not just going around in circles because in the meantime, knowledge, skills, capital keeps increasing. So sure, when you solve a problem, it opens up other problems and therefore the process of reducing disorder, increasing coordination is a process uh, which is forward-looking. It's uh, at each stage the general level of welfare is increasing. As I say, social capital is increasing, skills, knowledge, comfort, all these things keep increasing as a result of the entrepreneurial activities, which is quite important. But at the same time, it's not like Marx said, and not like Keynes said, that at one point, like entropy reaches its maximum level, and uh, this is the death of energy, no more improvement is uh, possible. This is definitely not the case because, as we have just said, every time the entrepreneur solves a problem, new problems arrives at a higher level and then the problem of uh, working for greater coordination is never ceasing. It keeps uh, opening up new possibilities, calling for a new test for entrepreneurial skills. We never reach the stage that capitalism has reached its uh, outer limits no more. Uh, improvements are, necessary, are possible because there is no end to this process. <clears throat> so here's the question. How do entrepreneurs diagnose disorder? And having done so, how do they bring about coordination at a higher level? How do they generate and disseminate information through the price system or other systems of economic indicators. Let me just mention a few others, such as in addition to prices, wages, rents, the interest rate, the discount, discount rate, and uh, there may be others 
some of them more important, some of them less, but you can see that price is not the only indicator which the entrepreneur has to watch in order to come to a decision how to reduce this order. So, the short answer to this question is that the entrepreneur is not so much concerned with the price as such, or wages as such, or rents as such, or interest rates as such, but concerned with the spread. So in other words, take two prices and the difference between them. That's what we call a spread. And that is the indicator he is watching. Not the price, but spread of prices. Most often it would be the spread between the asked and the bid price, but we'll talk about this later. But this is not limiting because very often another spread, for instance, the spread between the price of crude oil and the price of gasoline is a very important spread which will give clues to the entrepreneur whether this spread is wide enough in order to build new refineries or drill new uh, wells for crude oil and so on and so forth. The emphasis is on the spread, which is always difference of two. Could be, for most of us, could be quite unrelated. So you wonder why could the price of toothpaste and the price of uh, salt be important? Well, we don't know enough, so we just cannot dismiss that some sharp-eyed entrepreneur will pick that particular spread and find it extremely inviting to apply his skills to do something about reducing that spread. So the spread is the indicator, and not just price spread, but spread between wages, spread between rents, spread between interest rates and so on are giving the clues to the entrepreneur how to interfere with the existing system of things, how to reduce disorder, how to increase uh, coordination. Now this other question, how do Entrepreneurs generate and disseminate information through the price system or other systems of economic indicators. Well, the thing is this, that if you take what I call the landscape of spreads, the land, just imagine all possible spreads, most of them will look quite irrelevant to us, uninteresting. Why would, but that's not the attitude of the entrepreneur who looks at the whole landscape as it is. And he will interfere if he sees an unusually large or unusually small spread and do the job of the entrepreneur to 
reduce that or change it in, in a way which will promote coordination. Uh, at this stage it sounds too general, we have to get more specific and we will later. But just to introduce the subject, this, I'm just putting it to you that this landscape of spreads is the firmament, like the starry sky, where the entrepreneur sees constellations. And from these constellations, he can make conclusions that you can do something about that this constellation is not quite right. It could be improved. And his motivation is personal. He wants to make profit. And another thing which we have to keep in mind is that profit is uh, usually in economics is a poorly defined term, but we have a very sharp definition here because we talk about uh, pure entrepreneurial profits. Now usually when you say profit, it, it includes compensation for service, such as general manager, he has to be compensated for the trouble of being at the job from nine to five and do the job of the manager. Now, his compensation as a manager, his wages in other words, cannot be intermingled with the profits. We are talking about pure entrepreneurial profit which has nothing to do with the wages of the manager. Or if he also owns shares in the firm and then gets a return, or he owns bonds of that firm and he is collecting interest, that should not be considered as profit. It should be considered under a different heading. So whatever is left after all these charges I paid are paid by the firm, uh, namely wages, uh, compensation for other services, interest, dividends. There is a surplus left, then there is pure entrepreneurial profit which should accrue to the entrepreneur as a reward for his being wide-eyed, seeing these disorders, identifying them, diagnosing them, making up plans how to rectify the situation and eventually succeeding. And one has to remember that these pure entrepreneurial profits are uh, very volatile. They can disappear momentarily because of the competition there. He's not the only one who is watching that particular disorder and trying to address this particular problem. But there are others and the competition of these entrepreneurs may make these entrepreneurial profits disappear very quickly. And if that particular entrepreneur is not quick enough, he may end up with a loss. And this is what Marx failed to consider, that profit and the loss 
come hand in hand and you have to be not just lucky but also very very good at this trade to uh, be ahead of the herd and get there first and come away with the price which is the pure entrepreneurial profit. So considering all, all these uh, uh, the indicator is not the price but the spread and the spread will react to an entrepreneurial uh, interference get wider or smaller. There are cases, we'll talk about that when we get there, that in some cases, in most of the cases I would say a widespread gives you a good uh, measure of the disorder which exists in the world at large and the entrepreneurial activity will uh, reduce that spread. But there are examples, we'll point out when we get there, when actually a rather small spread gives you the sign of a disorder and then the entrepreneur tries to make that particular spread wider and if he succeeds this happens in uh, good time so he can reap the pure entrepreneurial profit. So I still want to give a little time for questions. I just want to wind it up. Uh, this is a theme which will come back to. There is something on this right in this write-up which you can read tonight or whenever you get at it, which describes the contrast between Menger's approach and the what I call neoclassical approach to economics. The neoclassical approach is the equilibrium model of prices. That there is supply and demand and uh, they the supply curve and demand curve and where they intersect that's uh, going to give you the equilibrium situation and the equilibrium price and that's what happens in economics and what Manger says no that's all nonsense there is no equilibrium in the real world of economics instead it's a disequilibrium system and it's no accident that the word disorder and this equilibrium starts with the same uh, uh, suffix, not suffix, prefix, this, because they both uh, describe the same situation, disorder and disequilibrium. An exchange of goods on a bar in a barter situation takes place not because the parties put equal value on the object or, or just take purchase and sale. The seller meets the purchaser and they agree on a price. This price 
is not an equilibrium price in the sense that both parties put the same value on the object of the transaction. As a matter of fact, they put different values. The buyer puts a higher value on this than the seller. And that's why exchange can take place. If they put the same value, there would be no exchange. You can think about that and you will find that this is really the case. It's precisely because the buyer and seller values the same object differently that exchange takes place. And that is true in all the cases. So there are two approaches. The neoclassical approach is the equilibrium model of supply and demand. And Manger's approach is the disequilibrium model, the process whereby disorder is being reduced by entrepreneurial activity and the higher level of coordination is being reached because certain exchanges take place, certain uh, uh, premises are being rented or rents terminated, rental agreements terminated, or wage agreements are made or wage agreements are terminated. In all this, you've got to see the disequilibrium, which is being reduced by proper entrepreneurial action. So, I guess I stop here, and we may have five or ten minutes for discussion. Time for your questions. One question, perhaps. <coughs> you broke it down on a level of um, kind of arbitrage between spreads, at least from a yeah. trading point of view, perhaps. These are the precise terms I'm going to introduce. Arbitrage and spread. And look up most textbooks on economics. And yes, even including Austrians such as Mises, I particularly checked uh, these two words, arbitrage and spread in Mises' uh, human action, which is a marvelous work, but you don't find, at least on the index. Actually, uh, I did a little further research I ignored the index because the index was not compiled by Mises himself. He just got a graduate student to do that. I mean, sure, you know, a, big, a great uh, man is not going to lower himself <laughs> to a very pedestrian job of compiling index. So it could be that this, uh, this uh, uh, graduate student, whoever he was, 
uh, was not careful enough and he missed the word or he didn't think it was important. I did that job when I was a graduate and compiled uh, indexes for uh, an author who was way above me and uh, I had to, I know you have to judge. You, it's not a, not, a, not a trivial job to compile index. You've got to make important decisions. Should I include this or shouldn't I? And if the word appears several different places, should I include every one of those places with cross-references and so on? So that's not a trivial question. Yeah, I, I, my, my question was actually coming to, to Kamsted because um, how, how does the concept of, of innovation fit into this? Because I mean, I think many, if you're not into trading directly, uh, many entrepreneurs come up with innovations, then okay, they perhaps have such an arbitrage opportunity, yeah. but... Uh, I don't want to go into arbitrage and sp a spread I have mentioned, but I will come to that in, in future lectures. But uh, let me just finish my story. So I did a little bit of checking of my own in human action, and I did find one place uh, where uh, Mises does mention arbitrage, which the compiler of the index missed. But then I read the section uh, which where this word occurred, and I came to the conclusion that whoever compiled the index was right because Mises did not want to elaborate on this. He just mentioned uh, for some reason it was convenient to use that word without explaining or s emphasizing the importance of that. So, uh, you know, I can confidently say that human action does not follow the Menger pro pro program of consistently following the disequilibrium model of economics. In fact, Mises goes out and s talks about uh, this equilibrium model. He calls it the evenly rotating economy, which is still better than the neoclassical idea of a scale, supply and demand, and looking for an equilibrium. But it's still far from Menger's original idea. And the spread is also. So I am suggesting it to you that in our approach here, we make no compromise. We just follow Menger, and spread is the word. The, it, it's not the price system which guides the entrepreneur. Forget it. It's not true. It's the spread. It's the firmament uh, or the landscape of all the possible spreads, which is the hunting ground for the entrepreneur. So we, we keep coming back to this as, as we go. Yes. Can I just add, I mean, when, you, when you say innovation, that can mean that you know, it spreads which people have no idea that they could relate to one another. They, start to, they can. You know, so that's how it sort of innovation spreads through that. The most amazing uh, uh, examples occur 
that you just wonder how one could see a relevance between two crises, far, as far apart as imagination can take you. And there is one, and the, the entrepreneur who picks on that is going to win because he may be the only one in the whole world who sees that. Nobody else, no other entrepreneurs. And if that's the case, he has a monopoly, a natural monopoly, and he will be the winner. And the others come late to the feast. By the time all the crumbs will be cleaned out and there's nothing left. But that's the way it works, and that's why it's unceasing. It goes on and on and on, and you create an equilibrium situation out of a disequilibrium, but there's a price, because somewhere else, where nobody suspected, a disequilibrium will appear. Very attractive, and a sharp-eyed entrepreneur will pick on that and make a good profit, until the latecomers arrive and they find nothing. This is very, very important. See it this way. Try to see it this way. This coordination uh, uh, process. Further questions? Yes, Peter. Technical question. When you define profits in terms of a spread, it's keeps reminding me that um, it sounds very much like a free cash flow concept rather than cash flow cash flow concept from, from finance where, where you know you subtract all the cash flows or, or, or you know it's it's not a, it's an economic concept rather than an accounting concept I'm, I'm well I would argue that it's just the opposite. The cash flow, when you say cash flow, you suggest that there's a constancy to it. It's, I mean, if it's just a drop, you wouldn't call it a cash flow. You just assume that it's continuing in time, at least for some period. Now, this is the exact opposite. It's like a drop. And the question is, who is going to catch that drop? Because once the drop is down there, is gone, and you took it, you may have to wait a very long time before the next drop will fall. So, uh, and, and not only that, but precisely because you are not waiting for uh, good luck to happen to you, but you are doing something about it. And there's a price when you do something about it. You are closing the spread. So the opportunity for a cash flow is going to disappear. And it may just disappear too soon for you to be able to call it a cash flow. So I don't think the uh, application of the concept of cash flow is very fortunate in this context. I have a question. Yes. Uh, there is a lot of disorder in the world. Oh, lots of people. <laughs> uh, is that because there's a lack of true entrepreneurs? 
yeah, you you hit the nail right on the head. And you see, this is the tragedy of our day and age. Because we created, I'm saying we, the powers that be created a situation where there are all kinds of artificial risks created. The derivative tower, the, uh, uh, I mean, even the idea of gold speculation is a contradiction because we are going to see that gold is one of the very, very few things in the real world which is constant. The entrepreneurial skill was misapplied. Absolutely. And we train uh, an army of economists who have no idea what the real world is about because they try to beat the market in derivatives, in interest rate uh, uh, futures, bond futures, uh, securitization. Securitization. All this, this crisis, the great financial crisis, is basically about wholly artificial risks which have been created. But at the same time, in the real world, there are real risks. And nobody is teaching the young people, the next generation, to look for those real risks and see how they can reduce those real spreads. Not the spread between interest rates, because really, if you think of it, interest rates, there's only one uh, rate of interest under the gold standard and the bond price was fairly stable and there's no speculation in bonds because there's no money to be made. There was not enough spread for speculators to invade that market. They could speculate in agricultural futures because that was a real challenge where you have to consider not just the weather but also the possibility of an earthquake or a drought or something which will influence the crop. <laughs> so if you reap a big profit, you well deserved it because there was a real risk, a real challenge out there and you found the solution for it. But speculating in interest rates, speculating in the gold price, on the face of it, is is uh, uh, waste of talent. Yes, and and you are addressing an artificial risk, which is I'm not criticizing these people because they are matching their own wit against the wit of the central bankers or the guys who rig the gold market and try to control the gold price and so on. So, the, you know, but there is no net social benefit right. because the risk is artificially created. Right. Whereas there are still lots and lots of risks which are naturally given and they should be, and we should train the young people to find those and work on the coordination problem of the real challenge, the real risks, and the reduction of them. 
So thank you for your remark because um, I think this is very important. It's a great um, way of criticizing our present situation of this tremendous amount of artificial risks which governments, central banks, the, uh, unions, trade unions, and in some cases even uh, businessmen create in the world, but they are purely artificial and, and uh, therefore no net benefit accrues uh, to society. I, I, I'm really grateful to you for that risk and in Rudy please take note because we are going to produce a book we should we should include that point. Well I, I intend to take these videos and play them back and oh, good. at the same time good. because there's too much to remember. Too much, too much. But that's that's very important. Absolutely. Any other question? Well then, cool today. Thank you, and uh, meet again tomorrow morning at 9:30 right here. Okay, you are on your own for breakfast, you know, <laughs> but there will be coffee tomorrow after the first lecture, one-hour lecture. So at 10:30, the coffee will be waiting for us. Thank you, Professor. Okay, shall we get started? This one and in the afternoon it's me and tomorrow it's uh, uh, me. It's me. Yeah, yeah. So, so today uh, Professor's going to be uh, continuing, continuing the lecture series. Um, more on goal-specific stuff today. I shall be doing um, with the Professor as well uh, the lectures tomorrow um, on the formation of the bid and the uh, offer price. And Peter, I think, is doing the closing of the spread uh, the day after. The day after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's begin. Good, good morning, morning, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> Welcome to our second lecture. I'm going to continue the discussion we started yesterday. The cornerstone of the edifice of Karl Menger on economics is the concept of marginal utility. And this is a dynamic concept. I don't know how well it came through yesterday, but this is what makes Austrian economics so distinct and so superior to anything else that can handle dynamics, whereas the neoclassic, classical and neoclassical economics is able to handle only the static uh, constructions in economics. So that's a great advantage, a great advancement over the state of knowledge when Menger introduced the concept of marginal utility. You see this dynamics when we talked about the rate of decline. The marginal utility is declining, period. That's the axiom. But the rate at which it does decline is different from 
commodity to commodity to commodity. By the way, this is also true for assets, but we are not discussing assets here, and uh, the analysis for assets would be very similar, but there are differences, so let's not mix the two. We are talking about commodities, which means goods, useful goods, which are not super abundant, such as air, or in some cases water, but they are in limited supply, they have to be produced, they have to be distributed, and so on, and they all have declining marginal utility, and marginal utility is the decisive thing which determines value. It's the last unit of a supply of identical portions of the commodity which determines the price and value. But now what we are going to talk about is the rate of decline. So for different commodities, the rate at which marginal utility declines will be different. And um, I have these graphs on the board yesterday showing that there is a limiting case when the rate of decline is the smallest. <clears throat> In other words, we rank all commodities according to the rate of decline in their marginal utility. And the interesting thing to look for is the smallest rate of decline. And I explained that the smallest rate is in fact so small, or could be small, so small, that it's practically negligible. So one might be tempted to say that the rate of decline is zero. It's constant marginal utility. Even if you get a lot of it, you don't notice any sinking in the value, whereas most goods undergo a very substantial sinking in value as the supply increases. Even commodities which are very necessary for survival, food, water, etc. And it should be clear why it's so critical to find that smallest rate of decline, because that commodity is destined to become money. And that's how we understand the origin of money, through the smallest rate in the decline of marginal uh, utility. And 
I pointed out that this commodity has been gold for thousands of years and as a result the above ground supply of gold is very very large much larger than any other good which is also being stored such as food wheat other metals but the supply is always limited because people will not store more of it than is absolutely necessary for the next period for consumption consumption purposes because if they did then they would experience a collapse in values so as a result just to give you a rough number the supply of gold the above ground supply of gold which is available it, it could be 50 years of production at the present rate of producing gold mining gold so we have enough gold to take care of all the needs consumption needs for at least 50 years some people estimate it even higher 60 70 years compared with copper for example which is another metal important metal industrial and so on if you ask the question how much copper exists in warehouses which is destined for consumption during the uh, uh, next uh, period of time then the answer is it's only a few months so whereas the ratio of supply to flows in the case of gold could be a large multiple such as 50 in the case of copper the same ratio supply divided by flow annual production is a small fraction it could be one-third or less that's a huge difference and, and many people don't really appreciate this or even think or even aware of that fact that they say oh gold is valuable because it's scarce well actually just the opposite well a scarce is a, a scarce and abundance is a relative term you have to say scarce or uh, abundant relative to what well here we have that measure relative to use over a period of time so it's just the opposite gold is far more abundant than people realize and in fact the abundance rather than suppressing its value will enhance its value because the logic behind it is that gold has that superb uh, marginal utility beating all other goods making people very confident that if gold has retained its value over thousands of years then it will 
retain its value for, uh, during my lifetime. I don't have to worry about it that there is a big crop uh, next year and the value collapses, which could happen to wheat or agricultural products. And uh, this gives people confidence. They couldn't pick a better commodity when it comes to saving. So there it is, for thousands of years, through periods of prosperity and calamity, through peace and war, through happiness and pestilence, gold has survived as money. So it is so ridiculous that in 1971, to be precise, August the 15th of 1971, so we are going to have an anniversary <laughs> while we are still together in this course, a very momentous thing happened, uh, historically. And I would say you have to project it in terms of thousands of years because there was a president in the United States by the name of Richard Nixon who declared in Washington that gold is no longer money. Forget the thousands of years of history, forget what people did, how they financed their uh, uh, production, consumption, wars, peace, and what have you. We just say that from now on is going to be paper. Take it or leave it. That's in a sense what is said. So looking at this in historical terms, it appears to be a, a ridiculous idea that just by an edict, by a proclam presidential proclamation, you could say, forget marginal utility, forget Manger, forget Adam Smith. That's the way it's going to be. And now look at it. Forty years later, we have the monetary system in shambles. But actually, even in the meantime, if you look back, there was an explosion of prices, explosion of interest rates, a lot of uh, monetary crises around the world. It's like a tsunami spread one, from one country to another and so on. And people were giving all kinds of explanation except for the real one, which is that you can't just do this to declare that, okay, from now on, it's dollars. No, forget about gold. You won't get gold. And uh, now we are suffering for it, because this is a crisis of the first magnitude, what we have in uh, the world today. And they are still not talking about gold, but it's a gold crisis, a debt crisis, but that and gold are very closely related for the following reason. I'm making a little bit of detour here, but I think 
this is important to keep in mind, the relationship between gold and that is as follows. Gold is the ultimate, and I emphasize the word ultimate, extinguisher of debt. When you repay your debt to the bank in paper money, the debt is not extinguished, it's just transferred from you to the bank. And there are lots of transfers of debt between banks or between a bank and the central bank or between countries. The debt is also circulating, but it's not getting extinguished. There's only one way, and think about it. I'm, I'm not making a, a propaganda gesture. I mean, just the fact that in order to extinguish that, you've got to pay it in gold. Why? The reason is because any other instrument which you could use in repaying that is, has two faces. It's an asset on the one hand because you can use it to repay that, but it's also a liability of someone else, either the bank or the treasury or another country, what have you, but it's, it's a liability and there's no way to escape that fact. People tend to forget it, but that is not solving the problem. Whereas gold is a financial asset which is not at the same time a liability of anyone. It's a thing in itself and, and that's it. You, you have no alternative for gold when you want to extinguish that. So, because President Nixon said, forget gold, we remove it from the monetary system, we demonetize it, we forbid central banks to buy or sell gold, we order the IMF to ignore it, to revamp its bookkeeping, which up to that point was in terms of gold units, they chucked it and they said, okay, it's paper from now on. <laughs> it's an empty gesture. And it has a very bad consequence, which we are suffering for right now. Because if there is no, if you remove the ultimate extinguisher of debt from the system, you remove it, then <laughs> poor debt has no choice but to keep increasing. There's no way to extinguish it. So every time you create a new debt, it could be you take a personal loan or just write uh, a check on a bank account which the bank is negotiating a credit a line of credit for you. You write a check on this, you created debt. Now you've repaid it a long time ago, but that same debt is still there somewhere in the world. It's circulating. So it just keeps increasing and it does it in a very 
what's the word uh, in a way which is not easy to recognize or you can't even see insidious insidious way that is increasing nobody sees it but it does why? because there is no ultimate extinguisher just think of it this is how could it be that with all the technological advantages and inventions and improvements and so on. We have all these advisors to the President of the United States, to the banks, to financial institutions, pension funds, what have you, insurance companies. There's not, not that much wisdom to realize that it's not just a matter of saying that we have demonetized gold, period. We are the United States of America. Our dollar is the ultimate means of payment. So application, well, all right. You can, you have the guns, you can force people to accept your paper money. But will that extinguish debt? Will that be able to act as an ultimate extinguisher debt? The answer is no. And all these uh, economists, financial experts, money doctors could not see it. And in its good time, gold strikes back. It's 40 years, and the debt has reached the threshold level that it can no longer support its structure. Tower of Babel, the biblical story, people wanted to build a tower which would reach to heaven. And God has punished them for their conceitedness and the tower came crashing down. And that's what's happening right now. So that's why I'm saying that gold and that go hand in hand. You can't understand one without the other. So what we are going to do today is to put this idea of uh, the evolution of gold as money into a, a different light, uh, give it a different perspective. And that's almost exactly a repetition of what uh, Manger did in his uh, book, Principle of Economics, and also he published several papers on this, and they are still vivid readings today. Uh, what I'm doing is just condensing this idea and explain the evolution of money. And this is in terms of what we call today uh, direct exchange of goods and indirect exchange of goods. Direct exchange is the same as barter. 
this is just another word, a technical word for barter. Barter is when people meet in the market and uh, somebody has surplus of commodity X, but a shortage of commodity Y, and there's another fellow at the same market, physical market, open air market, what have you, who has a surplus of Y and a shortage of X. Two fellows meet and make an exchange and they are both happy and go home. However, the problem is that this has to be a very lucky situation, that the fellow who has a surplus of X and shortage of Y finds another fellow who has just the opposite need because most, uh, in most of the cases there will be a third commodity and the fellow uh, who has the surplus of Y to make an exchange with this one has a need not for X, the surplus of the first fellow, but a third commodity, say Z. And then uh, there's no match. And can't they? So you see the uh, indirect, uh, sorry, the direct exchange has uh, great limitations. You've got to be very lucky to uh, find uh, in a limited period of time what you want and make the exchange. It's limited, it's time-consuming, and so on, and people came to the idea that having a third commodity may be a good thing, because if this third commodity, call it Z, has the property that it's easier to pass on than whatever surplus you have and whatever surplus the other fellow has, then you can break the exchange into two parts. Rather than a direct exchange, you break it up into selling and buying. So what happens is that if you have a surplus of X, you exchange it for Z, which is not what you want ultimately. But you know that if you have that, then it will be easier to find a counterparty who will take it off your hand. And if this fellow has a surplus of what you need, then the exchange is done. But that means you have to sell first and then buy afterwards. In other words, you have broken up the direct exchange into a sale and a purchase. And this assumes that society or the market or the people who are trading have succeeded in hitting on a commodity which is using the keyword, this is the first time I'm using it, but it's a very absolutely key word introduced by Megan marketability. So this commodity Z comes into play because it's more marketable than any other good which is being traded in the market at the same time. 
And this is the essence of the idea of indirect exchange. Indirect because, uh, as Menger emphasized, and I am uh, reminding you, you don't have a direct need for it. You take it in trade and pay it out in trade because it's, e it's easier to do, it's more marketable, it has the property that people recognize it, that regardless of their personal needs, this is the commodity which will facilitate trade. You might even say oiling or lubricating the the trade. Without it, it's very clumsy, it's lots of friction, lots of resistance, but once the uh, idea is recognized that the marketability of one good has evolved to the point that every trader realizes uh, this advantage, then uh, a great expansion of the exchange of goods and even exchange between goods and services, etc., can take place for the good of everybody. This society benefits, individuals as well as society at large. So let's now formalize this idea of marketability. Throughout history, there were lots of goods. The list is too long to go through it, so I'm just going to give you examples of goods which have served as money, as most marketable good at one time or another. Uh, the, there was a time, and you read about this in uh, the Greek classical Greek literature, such as Homer's Iliad and Odysseus, and so on. The cattle was very highly marketable; it was acceptable as money, and uh, <laughs> clumsy as it may appear to us. They had to make exchanges, then paid in terms of cattle. Now, of course, that assumed large purchases, such as buying a horse or buying armory and uh, uh, large quantities of food to finance uh, war and so on. But the fact is that cattle was money. A small exchange was like sheep. <laughs> if you wanted to use small change, then you exchanged cattle for sheep and <laughs> made the small payments in terms of sheep. But of course, the real small payments were made in terms of wheat, which was a durable type of food, which uh, uh, didn't spoil so easily. And uh, we observe this throughout the history of money that there was a duality to it. There was money for big exchanges such as cattle and there was money for small exchanges. Uh, and labor could be one of the things which uh, and that was wheat. And 
later on, of course, things changed. Ultimately, people realized that metals had property which were very, very suitable for money. And even there, there was two commodities, uh, gold and silver. So this duality of money goes through the history. Um, I will have another occasion to refer back to this. Now, uh, of course, cattle can be eaten. You slaughter the cattle and the meat can be consumed as food. And the same is true for wheat. So it uh, was another step that people realized that if food can serve as money, then perhaps food preservatives can also serve as money, or even better than food. And that was indeed the case. Uh, and uh, so it happened that the salt, which was the main agent of food preservation, one problem with food is spoilage, so especially meat or fish or, or even vegetables and then people realize that if you salt then you can uh, prevent spoilage and therefore salt became money as well and had great properties and in fact the English word salary and I guess in other languages French and so on the same thing uh, comes, is derived from the word salt. And uh, while we are talking about this, also realize that <coughs> the Latin word for cattle is pecus. So the English word pecuniary has this origin. It refers to something which is money but also has reference to cattle, pecuniary. Uh, if anybody remembers the word we are looking for <laughs> after the lecture, when during the question period, you may ask. But uh, I like to point out, this is called semantics, you analyze, or eti etymology. As study of meaning of words and how this meaning evolved sometimes it's hardly recognizable that one word came from another idea and pecuniary could be an example of that but it did come from cattle cattle was money and then over thousands of years this carried on and today we talk about pecuniary uh, demands or whatever that means money. Money demands. And uh, just a remark, in, in French the word for money is silver. Argent. Argent. Yeah. Yeah. That ultimately comes from Sanskrit. Now this is referring to an idea I've already talked about yesterday, that it's not the price, but it's the spread, the difference between two prices. 
When you want to define marketability, which is a property of goods, could be different from the four different commodities, then the key to determining that quality is the spread. And you can think about this. Is there a better way of defining marketability than in terms of spread? I, I doubt it. You might just talk about it at length, but if you want a concise definition, then that's what you will say. Take the difference between the ask price and the bid price. The ask price is what the supplier is asking you to pay. And the bid price is what you are willing to pay. And it's always the ask price which is higher. This is something we'll talk about tomorrow in more details. But this is a common experience, uh, not so much in the supermarket or in other small uh, scale markets, but if you take the stock exchange or commodity exchange or money markets and so on, you will always see two prices. Menger was the one who pointed out for the first time that forget about this equilibrium analysis, which is talking about a monolithic price. The market is forming a monolithic price. That's not what the market does. The market forms two prices. The ask price, which is higher, and the bid price, which is lower. And the formation of these two prices are, are different. Different forces apply. And the sources of the these forces are different. And you just have to treat them differently. So this was another fundamental idea of Menger's. And uh, out of this idea evolved the concept of marketability. Because then the spread, the difference between these two prices, uh, became an object of study. And Menger himself did study this. and. Uh, came and made a few observations and uh, in fact he uh, defined marketability in terms of the change in the spread as a function of quantity. This is very similar to what we did yesterday with marginal utility but it's a refinement of the idea because a marginal utility is a proxy for value. You had to introduce marginal utility because you wanted to define value. And you cannot define value in terms of prices because there are no prices unless there is money in which in terms of which you measure prices. So there is this idea of putting the cars before the horse. Well
what we are doing here, we assume uh, rather similar, because I admit we are again putting the cart before the horse, uh, and it would take us too long to put the pieces together to make it very coherent, and that's not really our purpose here. We want a bird's eye view of, of economics rather than the nitty-gritty how the uh, various bricks fit and so on. So, uh, again, we want to <laughs> define uh, marketability because we want to define money. So we say spread, but spread assumes prices. So, you know, I'm not going into all the details, I'm just saying that let's assume for the moment that there's something like an ask price and a bid price, and uh, there is a spread between them, and the question is that if bigger and bigger supplies arrive in the market, how, what effect will it have on the spread? And uh, you are interested in finding the commodity for which the spread will be fairly constant. Because that is a quality which money has, money should have. So you will say that a commodity is more marketable than another if the spread, difference between ask and bid price, uh, widens more slowly than for the other. Now why would it widen? Because as large quantities hit the market, they will have an effect on the spread. So su suppose that somebody is supplying a commodity on the market and he gets a very, very large order, an unusually large order. Well, he would not be a good trader if he would say, sorry, I can't fill that order because uh, it's too big, it's not in my bracket. He would not be a good, good uh, businessman if he did that. So what he will say is, sure, sure, I'll fill the order, give me some time, I'll, I'll get it for you. However, my spread will be wider. In other words, I am going to be, uh, I'm going to take care of my risks. And the fact is, if I exhaust my inventory because I deliver the goods to you and I have empty uh, warehouse afterwards, then I have to replenish my supplies and I don't know at this stage at what price I will be able to make my supplier to replenish my inventory. So in order to cover this risk, he will widen the spread. He will no longer say that I'm ready to buy and sell and that's my spread, period. But he will say, okay, at a wider spread and he will calculate what that wider spread should be, I'm going to 
continue doing business even though people give me very large orders. So that's a fundamental fact of the market that as a function of quantity the spread tends to widen. And the interesting thing to watch for is that for what commodity is the spread widening at the lowest rate. There will always be a positive spread. That's um, another axiom of Menger, which I'm not going to codify the same way as the marginal utility. But the spread must be positive for all commodities. If you say you have an accept, you have a counterexample, I bet you anything, your counterexample will come from the asset markets, not from the commodities. But when you keep talking about commodities, you will find that no exception. All commodities command a positive spread. It never ever happens that you buy something and turn around and you can sell the same thing at the same price. I mean, as an as a exception, it could happen, but uh, this is something which would be abnormal and, and you couldn't rely on it. So, uh, given the positive spread, the next observation that it's widening in, uh, as a function of quantity, and uh, you are looking for the commodity for which the spread widens at the slowest possible rate. In fact, you are looking again for a constant spread, if possible. And the answer is yes, it is possible. And uh, people found that gold was the commodity which uh, had that property. And that explains why gold. You may like gold, you may dislike it, you may hate it. You may uh, be neutral about gold, but the fact is uh, that nobody can deny is that it has this spread which is, for all practical purposes, constant as a function of quantity. Now, uh, there is a good discussion, which probably I'll skip because I'm running out of time, uh, how uh, cattle <laughs> fit, uh, fits that picture of uh, the spread. <coughs> well, I'd say a few words about it anyhow. Uh, you will find that this marketability we are talking about is, is important because there is often need for moving value from one place to another. And this idea of moving value in space is, is, could be very important. Think of in, import, export, exchange of goods. 
between two countries. Usually, one country has a surplus of some goods, but a shortage of another. Think of northern and southern countries, what they have. And, uh, the other country will have surplus of something different and shortage of the other. And then you just have to uh, take care of the exchange by paying. And it could be necessary, and in fact it is very often necessary, to move value over vast distances in Spain, in, in space, geographically. And um, cattle came very handy, because not only cattle was easy to carry, but cattle would, could be driven. It would self-propelling value, as it were. And even as you, as you drove cattle from one country to another, you didn't worry about uh, feeding your livestock because they could graze whenever time came for them to have an intake of uh, food, you just let them graze wherever you passed by. And they always found their food. So cattle became money, in fact, because of that property. It was the cheapest way of transferring value from one place to another. Another, word of, uh, another way of saying that is that you could transfer <coughs> value in space with the smallest losses. There are always losses when you do some transfer like that. But you want to minimize them. And the commodity or the good which is capable of providing this minimal loss is going to be money. And that's how capital became money. This is very clearly explained in Manger, but I don't think anybody would quarrel with that. So, uh, this is uh, something which uh, made for marketability. Now, gold is of course not <laughs> self-propelling. You cannot drive gold like you can drive cattle, and gold cannot graze, etc. We too far-fetched. However, gold has a, a very important property. Let's just compare it with silver for a moment, because this is also uh, going to play a role in our little story here. Why is gold more uh, marketable than silver, as it turned out to be the case in, also in the ancient world? Well, the, the, uh, the short answer is because the specific value of gold was higher. So one ounce of gold was always more valuable than one ounce of silver. And therefore, if you wanted to transport value from one place to another, a smaller weight could be carried, which meant smaller cost of transportation, also 
the risk of losing it to robbery or whatever was small because you could hide it better if you wanted to carry the same value in terms of silver. You, you needed a whole uh, cart filled with silver, whereas if you wanted to carry the same value in terms of gold, you could hide it on your body. Big difference. You, uh, you didn't need a horse to uh, draw the carriage, you could just walk yourself and take the value with you. So for that reason, uh, the uh, uh, gold as uh, more marketable uh, commodity played an important role as compared with silver. Now, however, silver had another advantage which gold didn't have, you see. And in order to understand that, we have to split the concept of marketability. What I, what I have explained up to this point was marketability in the large which refers to large payments. And quantity was increasing, and we looked at the behavior of the spread. When you wanted to transa make transactions ever larger quantities, the spread increased, and you were looking for the one which had the smallest rate of increase, or even constant rate, if that was possible. But at the same time, we could ask an entirely different question, which is still complementary to this one. What happens when you are asking for transactions in ever smaller quantities? We'll see the reason in a moment why this is necessary. And let me just ask you the question, the same question. If you increase quantity, the spread widens. What happens if we decrease quantity? What happens to the spread in general? Is there a general rule which we could say about decreasing uh, quantity and what effect it has on the spread? on the last price and the mid price. Yes? Increasing. It's still increasing. So if somebody thought, well, it may be decreasing, that would be the wrong answer. And, and why is it increasing? So you might as well carry on and say, in terms of the asked price and the bid price, why is it that you make transactions of so ever smaller quantities and the spread increases. Economies of scale, probably. Always? Economies of scale? No, I... I, I uh, you have the same transaction costs, but for small, smaller amounts, so it's hardly worth it to do. Yeah, yeah, you are getting closer. Yeah, well, you have to isolate small quantities and you have to make sure that you know how much it is in, by weighing it, right? And that brings in technology. 
because if you think of the job of a pharmacist, he has to have very refined scales, the same scale used in the market for selling potato will not do in the pharmacy. You need much more refined. So in other words, there's a cost, a transaction cost. First of all, isolating the small quantities, and secondly, to make sure uh, how much it is to be able to measure it. Packaging them by packaging them in small Well, that's right. To parcel out the commodity. So you think of of the job of the pharmacist, the job of the jeweler, who deal in small quantities. There's another English word, molar. These are called molar quantities. It has not, have nothing to do with the molar, <laughs> but with the uh, idea that you t want to parcel out this commodity into small parcels, but at the same time you want to know just how they compare, what the rate is, and so on. There's a problem there, there's a technological problem, and this explains why the spread widens. So I'll just take another two or three minutes to wind up this. The, uh, I'm drawing another graph here. And this is the spread. Now, the spread is measured in terms of the ask price, and that will be red. Okay? I, I just return to the idea that when quantity increases, the seller will increase his ask price. So this is happening. And when you bid for smaller and smaller quantity, again, you increase his ask price. Now, the bid price, which is always below that, they will never cross. I have blue for that, and you will see that what I call commercial range, this uh, you think of uh, open air market and the quantities which people buy of fruit or vegetables, what have you. Say from one kilogram to a few dozen kilograms. It's a commercial range. The two are pretty close to one another. Still not zero, but... And then, you might just think that 
for larger and larger quantities, the bid price will fall off because uh, at, uh, because of declining marginal utility. And the same thing happens here. So you see the spread, and I still have another color here, this is green. That's the spread. Okay? So you see how the spread varies. It's pretty constant in the commercial range, and then it starts increasing. And the same for smaller and smaller. And now, going back to the idea of marketability, there are two marketabilities for the price of one. One is the marketability in the large. But there is another one, marketability in the small. And they are both defined in terms of the spread, the green thing. One commodity is more marketable than another if the spread increases more slowly as the quantity increases, that's this one, or the spread increases more small, slowly as the quantity decreases. And after the uh, coffee break we'll see the implications of this distinction we are making here marketability in the large. There's another word for it, is liquidity. Now my little contest doesn't apply to those who have heard this before because I see many faces who have uh, the people who have heard this before. Those who have not, can they suggest a word for marketability, another word for marketability in the small. Divisibility? Divisibility is close enough, but that's not the word I'm looking for. So now I open it to everybody. Do you remember how we call this property? Another word for marketability. Orderability. That's the one. Orderability, and after the break, will return to that. Thank you very much. We return in half an hour.